Welcome back, yogis, to End of Suffering. My name is Derek Eden, and today I'm joined by um, my really, 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 really special teacher, mentor, friend. There's not enough words that I can say uh, to show how much I love and care and appreciate this woman. Um, Serenity. Serenity, um, tell the good people who you are and describe like what is it that you do what kind of offerings do you give to the world hello thank you for having me um, my name is serenity i am a human being having a spiritual experience but other labels that i you know identify with are life coach using yoga philosophy a yoga philosophy scholar writer storyteller and a myriad of other things, but I think it's less important. I think um, I'm just a human being having a spiritual experience. Serenity, what is it that made you want to delve into all of those? There seems to be a, a common thread in all the things that you just mentioned, and it seems like spirituality and just kind of helping others is, is something that's very dear and near to your heart. When did that start? And... Um, I guess what made you want to do that kind of work that you do? It's mm, a really good question. I think healing and helping and being a servant leader is a part of the Dharma that re is required of all yogis and spiritual seekers in some sense. And my dad has been an incredible model for that. Growing up, he taught meditation and yoga to inmates and in jails and in prisons and he always emphasized how being alive is not just about satisfying our sensory pleasures or our desires but rather what we can do in this precious lifetime to give back and I think that's the ultimate purpose of the path of self-realization it's to help sentient beings find themselves and achieve self-realization too and to me, that's the core doctrine of Buddhism and all spiritual practice, ultimately to do self-study and to go within the self so that we can become selfless and give to the world what the world needs. In other ways, it feels like without service, um, without helping, there is no purpose. Um, my great teacher, Dr. David Wolf, always taught us that the human dharma is service whether we are in service to our tongue and we feed ourselves food or whether we're in service to our genitals and we give ourselves pleasure the human being is not separate from service and so why why direct service simply for our own gratification um i think the point is to move outside of ourselves towards the collective all knowing that whoever that we're helping, whatever sentient being that we're helping, is actually an extension of ourselves. So the self with a capital S, self. That's so beautiful. I'm so glad we're recording. <laughs> um, <laughs> would you say this idea of service, was it something that was taught to you by your father? Or was it something that... Or was there some sort of like awakening or moment for you where you realized that that is what you wanted to do for the rest of your life was be someone that was in service specifically to others and to the healing for others? 
Uh, I would say it's it's two different things. One is that it's always been an inherent knowing. As a child, I loved animals, and I always wondered why we ate our friends. And so in one sense, I would say it was inherent. The second is that I, it was taught. I have great examples in my life, including my dad, including my mom. And then third is actually self-realization, too. I remember being in a marketing agency um, developing decks to get more clients and editing slideshows and working on really cool technology and then wondering what the purpose of my life was. And every day I was sitting at the desk asking myself, would I be happy if I died tomorrow? And the question was always no when I was sitting at that desk. I knew life was much more than fulfilling the profits of my bosses, of being a part of the system and spending my life nine to five in dedication to money. Something about it just felt so wrong. And it took a lot of courage to kind of decondition my mind and what society was telling me that I needed to do for me to realize that service was actually the only thing that is true. You know, money at the end of the day will disappear. Our lives at the end of the day will disappear. But what can I do in this brief, precious moment that is my life that actually impacts those who will come after me? Um, and that is the main main impetus and drive for me at this point. So I would say it's like a three-layered thing. Mm -hmm. um, how does one get to service, ultimately? I, transformation seems to be kind of a thing that comes at us from all angles, if we're willing to listen. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea um, of we're always in service of something, whether we realize it or not. And that it is very much like a societal thing to be conditioned to be in service to money. And sometimes in the chase for that, uh, we don't realize that, oh, actually, I'm not even in that. I'm not really in service of making money for myself. I'm working this nine to five or doing all of this marketing or building all this uh, pro these products for somebody else to make money, for somebody else to succeed. When really, if, if we're in service to people, the people take care of each other, right? That's kind of, it's it's actually this uh, this some this thing idea that I've been slowly awakening to is the reality that the more I do for others, the more it seems like the universe kind of like course corrects itself, and then the abundance is just there. It's just tapping into the selflessness rather than the selfishness mm. of wanting to achieve or wanting to get something out of someone. Mm. Um, yeah, that I think that's really true. And if we think about the source of our suffering often, it's when we're thinking about only ourselves. I will, I think I've talked to you about this before, but yeah. I will never forget the time when I was crying about, to my dad, I think it was about marketing or something. Just like crying, crying, so upset, so upset, complaining, venting. And my dad just out of nowhere goes, you're feeling upset because you're thinking about your fucking self. And I just, I was like, whoa, it was very jarring. And some people have kind of interpreted that as like problematic, but I don't see it that way. It felt like a really beautiful teaching from my dad to recognize that I was really being selfish in that moment. And 
yeah, suffering can teach us where our di- attention is directed. Is it simply towards ourselves or is it in consideration of all sentient beings that we encounter? I get a lot of teachers that will ask me like, oh, I still get very nervous when I teach. Like, can you give me any tips? Like, what can I do when I teach a yoga class and I'm feeling shaky or nervous or anxious or self-conscious or whatever? Like, like what is that? And I more or less give him something that's very similar to what your dad told you. That, yeah, you're nervous and you're uh, anxious and you're worried because you're making this about yourself. You're thinking about, what do people think about my music? What do they think about me? What, what, what does this outfit say about whatever? Like, there's all these self-preoccupations. But if you just turn all of your awareness and all of your focus to your students, the people that need the healing that you have to offer, um, all of that's gone, really. Like, there's no way for you to be fully present for someone else and also have these lingering ideas about uh, self-doubt or whatever, the shyness or the nervousness or whatever. So it's, um, it seems like that's what meditation gives us. It gives us the ability to be able to harness our focus and our awareness into that single point. And then being able to move that point in places that can be the most healing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It also kind of like helps us identify the illusion of what we understand as the self. Often when we think about the self as the lowercase s self, that is individual. That is simply the vessel that we are in. But ultimately what yoga teaches us is that the self is all-encompassing. It involves everyone that we encounter, including you know, animals, including the plants, including our mother earth. And when we think about the self in that sense, it is so much greater than that lowercase s self that worries about the perceptions of others, that worries about the perception of self. It's not about any of those things. When we are really tuned into that interconnectedness, then we can truly be a part of the whole and do our duty or our responsibility as a part of the whole which is to take care of ourselves and that comes through service your your whole story is so fascinating to me i never get tired of hearing it but um because you've done some traveling like you've kind of seen different parts of the world and and um can you tell us a little bit about that because you were you were born in korea Mm -hmm. okay yeah so i was born in seoul south korea um and i grew up there until i was nine years old And I had the great privilege of growing up in a family that was very spiritually oriented and philosophically oriented that actually they, yeah, they they originally taught me how to be of service. I think about my grandfather a lot uh, these days. I didn't get a chance to get really close with him in adulthood because I grew up here in the United States. But one of my favorite memories growing up is going to the bathroom and it sounds silly, but every time I'd go to the bathroom, right in front of us, he would have this like laminated piece of paper that was always in front. And he would change it every so often with different philosophical concepts for us to ponder upon as we were on the throne, per se. That's hilarious. Uh, yeah. And um, he dedicated his life to helping people. He was first a school teacher and a, and a composer, actually. And then he dropped all those things so that he can become a Chinese medicine doctor, a a hypnotherapist, an acupuncturist, and he did a chiropractor. And he dedicated his whole life to helping others. 
Um, and it was a really radical move um, for someone at that time. You know, being a teacher held some sort of prestige. Mm-hmm. And these kinds of like natural healing modalities were kind of criticized, especially with the colonized mindset of Western ideals being better than Eastern ideals. And so um, I feel really lucky that I kind of grew up in that environment um, where, yeah, philosophical concepts, spirituality, healing, helping were the priority. Would would you say your your grandfather was also a practicing Buddhist then? As he kind of was the person that. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I would say that in some sense that he was. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that there's more of like Confucius values there, but the Buddhism is really coming in from my dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad, Dr. Frank Tedesco, who is a Buddhist studies scholar, um, who has taught me so much and has been my greatest teacher of this life so you're born in korea to this beautiful spiritual uh super smart family (laughs) and uh you said it was your dad that made the decision to move to the states um actually yeah um it was my family but yeah um my dad originally came to korea as a peace corps volunteer to help leprosy victims and ended up staying there for 13 plus years, got his PhD in Buddhism there, met my mom, had me, um, all this stuff, built a life. And then my grandmother in Florida was getting really old and my dad being the eldest son felt really responsible to take care of my grandmother. And so as a family, we decided to move from Korea to the United States. Um, so I'm in this really interesting place of being both a American, an American, and an immigrant, um, which is always confusing uh, yeah. to some people. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like um, it's almost like having two identities in a way, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I was born I was born in New York. Both of my parents are Colombian, but I was raised in in Bogota. I lived in Colombia for ten years, and I vividly remember, I wasn't as smart as you are, but uh, oh, I literally, <laughs> I literally moved to Colombia. Forgot I didn't know any Spanish, right? So it, things were so difficult in the beginning. I was like five or six years old. Uh, learned Spanish, forgot English, and then around like thirteen years old, moved back to Florida as well to <laughs> live with my sister. And same things had like a little accent and everything. Um, but yeah, I totally relate to that that sentiment of just you're you're an American citizen, but you know you also have this upbringing in a different country, different culture, and I feel like yeah, living in another place at least for me, you see the world so differently from the kids your age. What was that like going from being growing up in Korea with Korean values and going to Korean schools to coming to Florida? <laughs> like what what was that? Uh, transition like and what was your experience like going to school after going to school in Korea oh my gosh yeah Um, I'm appreciating the question because in many ways it feels like a reflective practice (laughs) Um, how is it different oh my gosh dramatically you know Um, when I was growing up in Korea I was the only mixed person in the school so I got a lot of attention and in not always in a positive way you know got bullied around a lot for being American this this, and that Um, apart from kind of like the identity kind of crises that come up as a mixed person growing up in two different countries um, there's this 
um, other feeling of um, like discipline being very different and rigor being very different. When I was growing up in Korea, I remember working with like Bunsen burners in the chemistry lab. Um, and just to kind of explain the context of that, I moved to the United States when I was nine years old. So I was in this chemistry lab like at seven, eight years old, you know, conducting experiments as a part of school. Um, in addition to that, we had school from Monday through Saturday. And then we didn't really have janitors. All the students actually cleaned up the school um, each week. And so there's this greater sense of like community responsibility in addition to rigor and schedules. Um, and I was really lucky to kind of get out of Korea right before Hagwon started. Hagwon being like after school school mm -hmm. um, that many Koreans are kind of needing to do. So a lot of students after like the age of nine will be in school from like 7 a.m. to like 10 p.m. like constantly studying. Wow. Um, and so when I moved to the United States and my parents placed me in Waldorf school, Waldorf being uh, Rudolf Steiner's creation, which is like very uh, creativity oriented, which is very like free and freedom and choice oriented for students. It was like, wow, like this is very different. And then, of course, you know, in the U.S., we go to school from Monday through Friday. So having an additional day just felt like such a luxury. I just remember thinking, wow, these kids in America have it so easy. Um but then related to identity, um, you know, in Korea, I was getting made fun of for being American, had that kind of crisis. But then when I moved to Florida, I, one of the first conversations that I had with a classmate was um, something like this. Hey, I'm from Korea. Oh, that's not true. Korea is not a country. You're Chinese. And then what? just and then, yeah. And then being faced with kind of the racism of America in addition uh -huh. to, you know, just my own identity, uh, you know, reflections. Um, that's so funny. You might have witnessed the racism of someone that doesn't know that Korea is a country. <laughs> that's so silly. Um, if you don't, if, and if this is triggering or if this is not something you feel comfortable with talking with about, please let me know. We can always um, edit it out. But what were what are korean insults for being americans like how how would you how are you being made fun of for being american in korea if you don't mind me asking oh well you know it's interesting because it's not like i'm making fun of like oh you're less than us it's not like that uh -huh. it's like america was placed on this pedestal so there was this kind of assumption that was made that i was wealthy that I was like some sort of like celebrity-ish type of thing um, that kind of led to like a interesting like jealousy slash like mystery to me, mm. you know, because I would go to the U.S. every once in a while to visit my family and stuff and I would come back and then all the Korean kids would just like see me wearing, you know, american clothes and just assumed that it was just like so expensive that i was spoiled that all this you know th all these things judgments about me little did they know that my parents and i lived in a tiny two-bedroom apartment at the base of a mountain and that's all we really had just like really simple simple living um so I think things have changed a bit uh, i think there's still a bit of a romanticization of american life in Asia but back in the day 
it was kind of felt in this like colonized mindset that I'm still kind of reflecting upon and and learning from. Yeah. So you moved to Florida when you were nine and is that middle school at that point? That was third grade. Third grade, wow. Mm. And you finished high school in Florida as well? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I lived in Florida until two thousand nineteen pretty much. Although I did live in India for a year when I was eighteen. I'm right out of high school. I was a Rotary Youth Exchange student. What and what is that? A Rotary Exchange student? Yeah, so Rotary International is a pretty well known, like nonprofit organization that is kind of uh, run by a lot of successful people that are dedicated to helping people. So they're kind of credited to um, have ended polio by spreading the vaccine all over the world and things like that. But nonetheless, they have this like branch of like international relations and promoting like international understanding. So one of the ways that they do that is through the Rotary Youth Exchange Program, which is a one-year exchange program for high schoolers to live in another country for a year. Um, I was kind of like an interesting exception because I went after I graduated, but I was technically a senior when I applied, so I was able to take a gap year in India. That's so rad. What did what is um, what was your biggest takeaway from that year in India? Oh my gosh, <laughs> I don't know if I can say just one thing. It's such whatever. There, it I was mean, such we've a got rich, time. It was such a rich experience. You know, India was like the most difficult and most rewarding year of my life Mm -hmm. i experienced a lot of trauma and a lot of realization in that year um what is the big takeaway well interestingly enough in high school i was really rebellious i guess that's not super interesting but in (laughs) some sense you know i was rebelling against like my dad for example who was like deeply spiritual and I kind of, my rebellion was like in deep skepticism and atheism. And so I was just like, God's not real. Spirituality is meh. You know, it was just kind of like this, like very disgruntled attitude about it all. Yeah. Um, And then when I went to India, I witnessed a devotion that I've never seen before in my life devotion that is so sincere so grand so magnificent so full-hearted and I was so moved by the experience and just like witnessing spirituality and where a lot of spirituality was birthed just kind of really moved my heart to really be connected to the divine in a way that I chose it for myself Um, again you know I inherently have always been a spiritual being and I knew that but in my teenage years, I just really sought to belong. Not only am I a mixed person, but my dad is a Buddhist studies scholar, um, a hippie. I just kind of like stood out from the crowd always, especially in Florida. And all I wanted to do so badly was to belong and have community. And so I rebelled against what was my inherent nature um, to only find it again when I went back to India. That's so rad. What what city uh, were you in? I lived in a really sweet town named Jalgaon in the state of Maharashtra. 
I also spent some time in Nagpur, which is considered the very center of India. I also spent some time in Nashik, and then some months in Dharamsala, where I lived with Tibetan refugees. Wow. Um, that's so cool. Honestly, we can have a whole like conversation just about that. Uh, I've been dying to go to India. I feel like in India and then just that whole part of the world. Um, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> um, okay, so you do your travel abroad. You get reconnected with Source. You come back to the States. And um, what what happens? What <laughs> happens next? Where do we, where do we, where does the story go after that? Um, you know, the self discovery continues, kind of from a sweet child's perspective in some ways. Mm. You know, when I was in India, I was really traumatized, and I think trauma kind of shows itself in a lot of different ways. One of the ways that I was traumatized is seeing the deep poverty in India, mm-hmm. just so much suffering. Um, you know, kids just wearing tattered clothes and disabled people just begging in the streets. It really left an impact on my heart um, to the point where I, I think it kind of developed a bit of like a fear and like a deep motivation for me to one, avoid being in that position ever in my life. And then two, to do something about the suffering that I witnessed. And so I went to college um, pursued a few different types of majors but then ultimately landed in advertising and public relations which doesn't seem to make too much logical sense (laughs) but the motivation was actually to learn how i can influence and change the minds of the masses um, for change and so my naive perspective is if i get this degree in advertising and public relations then i will go to india and and you know, start programs that will create jobs, that will lift an entire economy, um, and that I would play some sort of role in that change in India. Um, I would say that that is not what happened after I graduated. Uh, In the United States, advertising is kind of related to consumerism, materialism, breeding of attachment. And I really, for some reason, didn't think that I would be participating in that. But as kind of life unfolded and as I tried to make a living for myself with that degree, that's what I ended up doing. And that's kind of like, you know, full circle, you know, where I was sitting at the desk asking myself, what am I doing here? Is this the purpose of my life? And if I died tomorrow, would I be happy? Mm Kind of came from. Well, where did you get your advertising degree and how did you land? I'm guessing was that what prompted the decision to do the yoga studies or how did we arrive at that place? Oh, yeah. Um, well, so this is interesting. I'm kind of seeing the full circle of my life in some sense with these questions. Yeah, um, yeah I was sitting at my desk wondering about my life and then out of nowhere, my mom lets me know that my grandpa in Korea is dying. And it was shocking. I haven't seen my family since I was nine years old at that point. And I knew I had to go back. And how old are you at this point? Oh, it's 2016. Um, so I was definitely in my mid-20s. Okay. Yeah. So within 48 hours, I applied for a leave of absence from my job. And I was on a flight to Korea. And I spent a month there just, you know, being with my family, 
grieving my grandfather who was dying, um, having like an identity crisis, getting deep clarity that advertising in public relations was not the way. Um, as I was kind of confronted with death through the death of my grandfather. And then I decided to come back to the United States because I knew I had some projects that needed me at work. And the day that I came back to work, I remember walking joyfully to my desk and someone else was sitting there and I knew something was wrong. And so I went to my boss's office. Um, This boss was actually a family friend, someone my Italian grandmother considered to be family too. But either way, it was, I'm just sharing that just to kind of explain how painful this was for me. Um, I was replaced because I went to Korea um, and I just, it was this like, big realization of I'm just a number in the corporate system Mm. and not only that there was almost like this sense of like oh serenity you're too good to be in advertising kind of attitude as I was getting let go like oh maybe you should think about applying to Disney you know that's I remember them saying that 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 I was too good to be in advertising and I just remember turning my head looking at these people wondering what the fuck you know honestly um and that from there i i knew was my opportunity i knew was the divine kind of allowing me to turn the course and that's when i actually had my first mushroom experience and from there i got a call very auspiciously very divinely timed by my mentor dr habib sadegi who lived in who lives in los angeles He called me out of nowhere saying, hey, I would love for you to come live with me and my family. We will hire you and you can live with us in Los Angeles for three to six months. And four days later, I was on a flight to Los Angeles. Whoa. Yeah. And then so the story kind of continues. I'm I'm in Los Angeles kind of working as a nanny, as a personal assistant to Dr. Habib Sudeghi and his wife, Sherzad Sami. And I just realized, wow, the world is very different in California, in Los Angeles. I actually belong here. In Florida, I was considered like this free spirit that no one understood. And in California, I was just one of many spiritual seekers, which was really beautiful. Um, And I knew yoga was going to be the way for me. And so so I started doing research while I was in L.A. I was like, this is my time to do a teacher training. I'm going to make it happen. And uh, I think it was like 0.1 miles away from my mentor's home was Core Power. And Core Power just happened to have a training that was in the exact dates that I was going to be in Los Angeles. And it was the exact price that I could afford and nowhere else aligned except for that studio that was 0.1 miles away from my mentor's home. (laughs) So you literally, not only did you have the perfect time off to do this but you were walking distance to the teacher training that you wanted to do yes and it was the only one i could afford it was so wild (laughs) that's insane i don't think you've ever told me that that's so crazy (laughs) Mm -hmm. what studio was it it was core power no but like what what city oh in core power uh encino 
Shout out um, to Core Power Encino. Shout out to Core. <laughs> they they don't need any shout outs, but they we'll don't. give it to them anyway. Shout yeah. out to Core Power Encino. That's so wild. I started at Core Power as yeah. well in Studio City. Um, yeah, we can definitely criticize corporate yoga for a lot of different reasons. And in some sense, there's a gratitude that I feel for introducing yoga to the masses. Yes. Uh, I was going to actually say that if there's one thing that they really just nailed it um, at Core Power specifically is their teacher training programs. They Some of the best teachers and some of my best friends um, have all been core power trained and no matter at, even at other studios other places that i've been to like it seems to be kind of the um what's the word it's kind of like the entry point for mm-hmm. so many so many of us is is core power um that's so rad mm-hmm. so let i guess maybe we're backtracking a little bit but when did when did the yoga come into play um because your dad was a buddhist scholar but was he also a yogi was your grandfather a yogi or your mom or anything like that or is that something you just discovered in florida uh, when when did yoga come into the picture um yeah i'm one of those rare very fortunate people that have had yoga in my life my whole life um when i was like a toddler like an infant you know my grandma and my mom would put me in different positions and stretch my body and things like that so my first yoga asana was when i was like a, a tiny little baby and then from there i think i really started kind of diving myself more into asana in high school i would do yoga like twice a week three times a week with my mom at the local ymca or something like that Mm. but yoga itself has been a deep part of my life i remember my dad taking me to like ashtanga yoga studios when i was like a baby and like looking at like these yogis and these crazy postures and being like wow um and little did i know that i would dedicate my whole life to it years later that's so cool so you do your, your teacher training, 200-hour teacher training? Mm-hmm. Sick. And mm. do you start teaching right away? What what happens next? Because your, your mentor, they gave you kind of like a time limit, right? Like three to six months. What What's happening towards the tail end of that teacher training and towards the tail end of those three to six months? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, honestly, they would have wanted me to stay as long as I wanted to. I think I, I was ready to move on and try to build something for myself at that point. And so I went to Florida and yeah, I mean, the auspicious like divine unfolding just continued to happen. I remember moving to Orlando and there was this like, you know, studio by around. Um, I think it was like, yeah, it was yoga fit, yoga fit. And I just was strolling around and I walked in and I said, hey, I'm Serenity. I'm, I'm a yoga teacher. Are you guys hiring? And they were like, no. And then th- they were like, yes. And <laughs> next thing I know, I applied and I taught a, I, you know, did a little test yoga class or whatever. And I was immediately hired and I was teaching at a yoga studio, like pretty much like within two weeks of moving back to Florida. That's awesome. And then, so I taught there for about a year. And then at the time I was living in Chiliota with my ex and there was this like local gym, just maybe like two minutes drive down the road. And I remember working out at that gym and then I thought, I wouldn't it be nice if this gym had a yoga program? Wouldn't it be nice if I started it and built it from the ground up? And then 
I just went to the owner and I said, hey, Wayne. Shout out to Wayne. I love you. Um, Shout out to Wayne. What was the name of the place? The uh, it was called Riverside Fitness. Riverside Fitness. <laughs> Wayne, if you're yeah. listening to this, you owe some advertising money, buddy. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't own the gym anymore. And he's such a spiritual friend um, love. now. But yeah, I remember introducing myself to him. And he was like, yeah, let's 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 do this. And so I started teaching like three yoga classes a week. The next thing I know, I'm teaching like two yoga classes a day. The next thing I know, I'm building like this entire yoga community. Then I start teaching workshops. I start, you know, having like, you know, so many students coming in every day. Um, And I built up this whole yoga community, like just two minutes down from my house. And it just all kind of auspiciously unfolded. I loved teaching there and I was so exhausted. You know, teaching asana to survive was not something that financially supported me. Um, and at the same time was something that was my life purpose. Yeah. And so, yeah, after, you know, getting burnt out in some sense uh, from teaching asana, I decided that I wanted to actually focus more on the fullness and the wholeness of yoga and make something of myself in yoga and that's when i applied to the yoga studies program at uh, loyola marymount university and moved to los angeles for that wow that's so rad that's so rad so you come to la you do your teacher training then you have your own hero's journey going back to florida taking the lessons that you've learned bringing yoga to the people creating this whole program from scratch burning yourself out which i personally think is a rite of passage for any real yogi to just do the 15 20 classes a week uh it's the tapas you know we burn ourselves to the ground to start again yes (laughs) yes 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 and you did it and then the realization that um while asana is incredible and and there's such an incredible and beautiful like healing modality there is definitely um, there's definitely a ceiling that is felt. There's limitations to the body, and then but there's so much more to the practice, and there's so much more to be discovered. Mm-hmm. So then you decide to embark on that the the fullness of what the practice has to offer, and then that leads you back to Los Angeles. Back to Los Angeles. That's so rad. Um. Well. That's so cool. That is so, that's so cool. Thank you so much, Serenity, for taking the time to sit with me, uh, for having this conversation. I kind of, I think I want to leave it there. Okay. I want to leave it there because there's so much, I, I know how much more happens after that. There's, it's an incredible amount more, but it's, thank you for the questions and helping me kind of think back on my origin story. Yeah. I feel like that's what this episode feels like for me. Yeah. For sure. And uh, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for sharing with such an open heart and allowing yourself to be um, vulnerable and caring and uh, to share all the aspects of of that. Um, I'm sure it's going to be the first of many more. Um, So I kind of want to leave a little bit of room for that. Um, One more time, if you can summarize some of the offerings that you give or, or how can people reach you if you want to be reached at all where where could people get a hold of you if they wanted to collaborate or work with you in any capacity yeah um i definitely welcome collaborators seekers looking to find their way 
Um, I'm here to be of service and to be of support. I am a yoga philosophy-based life coach. I do not have a website or anything at the moment, so I would encourage everyone to just either reach out to Derek and ask for my email address or phone number, something like that. I'm pretty accessible. I'm just a human being and a friend, and I'm here to kind of talk about life and continue the conversation in that way. She's very humble when she says she's just a human being. She's really a goddess embodied. <laughs> high energy, slow down to a slow vibration. Uh, but thank you so much, love. And uh, I'll put all that information in the show notes. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you very, very soon. Om Shanti.